Good morning, welcome to David Week uh, 4. Uh, some housekeeping things before we dive in. Number one, next week is our trunk or treat. Some of you have been newer to our church or you weren't around last year during this season. We want to let you know that there's going to be over 4,000 people in this parking lot next Sunday afternoon from 4 to 7. Uh, and so we as a church have two priorities for this. There's lots of great outcomes, a lot of great things and goals that come out of this event for us. But really, it's twofold. The first is, we want to be a blessing to this community. And the fact that 4,000 people show up and get free fun and candy and it's safe and it's an absolute blast um, really shows that it's, it's scratching an itch in this community in particular. And so uh, we want to be a blessing, number one. Number two, we come together as a church in a great way. It's so great to rub elbows together as we're lifting hay or putting pumpkins down or handing out candy to kids with our trunks decorated. Uh, we become a closer church uh, and we grow closer to Jesus when we give ourselves away in love to our neighbors. And so we want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up to volunteer, you can do so on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com, um, or you can sign up in the foyer on your way out. Uh, we've got um, a, a cork board there that you can sign up. It's going to be an absolute blast. So we're in week four of David. It's been great going through this series, and I just want to kind of recap kind of where we've been. First week, we looked at the anointing of King David. The second week, we looked at David and Goliath. Last week, we looked at David and King Saul. And this morning, we look at David and Absalom. Uh, in our context for this morning, Saul is now dead. We read that last week. But David is eventually appointed king, and he has immediate success. And we're going to bypass one of the more pivotal stories of failure in the life of David with his affair with Bathsheba uh, because we looked at it in our psalm series back in February. So if you're curious about that story, you want to dig into that, um, you can go back to our 150 series and check that out. But just know that today's story immediately follows David's sexual assault of Bathsheba, okay? Uh, it's then we are introduced to David's son Absalom. And this morning we're going to look at this story of David and his son. We're going to kind of Quentin Tarantino this, though. We're going to start with the ending, and then we're going to go back and work our way back towards that, okay? Uh, so are you ready? Okay, here's the, here's the ending. 2 Samuel 18, verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had, him, who had told him this, What? You saw him? Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And then ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled a large heap of rocks over him. When David heard the news, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. A, a tragic ending for King Absalom the heart-wrenching pain of losing a child for King David. The ending of the story, it's brutal on many levels, and it's so violent. But what led to these tragic circumstances? 
Uh, The story of Absalom starts with another tragic event in the family of David. As king, David had many wives, and he has many children from these different wives. Three of them are the focus in chapter 13. Uh, First, we have Absalom, of course, um, and then his half-brother Amnon, and then his full sister Tamar. Here's uh, some renderings of them. Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. Now, Amnon has allowed himself to have an insatiable lust for his half-sister, Tamar. All he does is think about sleeping with her. And I'm not going to give you the details because they're so disturbing, but Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and kicks her out. Then he leaves her no dignity, and then he despises her. He, the Bible says that he hates her more than he had lusted after her. Now, Tamar covers herself in ashes. She begins to mourn, and the whole palace knows what happens. Yet David, who's the king, does nothing. Absalom, her brother, her full brother, takes her into his house and takes care of her. For two years, doesn't do anything to his half-brother Amnon in revenge. But after those two years, an opportunity arose, and the hatred built up in the heart of Absalom. It, It took over. So he killed his brother Amnon, to get revenge for the rape of his sister. Now, though this is understandable, it brought about more pain, more heartache, more violence in an already extremely painful family dynamic. The whole situation is just incredibly messed up. When King David heard of the death of his son, he wept and he mourned. Now, Absalom, after murdering his half-brother, flees the palace for fear of repercussions. And David mourned over losing Absalom as well. So King David didn't just lose his oldest son, Amnon. He also lost Absalom. And David was shaken to the core. Now his, his, his general, Joab, his faithful, sturdy general, uh, saw that David was shaken by missing Absalom. So he, Joab kind of connives his way to kind of bringing Absalom back into the palace. As soon as Absalom arrives at the palace, this is what David says. He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. This is his son who just murdered his half-brother, who flees and escapes, and David's trusty general eventually brings him back. And now uh, Absalom's back in the palace. He's in good standing with the people and he no longer has fear of the repercussions of his own actions. Then the scriptures say this in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it in its way and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standards. Can you see a bit of foreshadowing here? An awful lot of talk about the Pantene Pro-V hair that Absalom has. Is that going to tie in somewhere later in the story? Well, yes, you guys already know the ending, right? It's that same hair that gets caught in an oak tree that eventually led to his own death at the hands of Joab, the very one who brought him back into the palace in the first place. But we're not there yet. Absalom's back in the palace. He marries. He has children. He names his first daughter Tamar after his sister. He lives in his house for two years without seeing his father, David. 
Two years. Finally, he and David get on speaking terms after Absalom demands it from his father. But has too much happened? Is it too little too late? Has the bitterness and unforgiveness allowed, that has been allowed to live in Absalom's heart been there too long? Has he been thinking about his father and how he, his father did nothing when his sister was taken advantage of? Has he been thinking about how he's been home for two years and his dad hasn't even seen him? So over the next four years, Absalom, David's most handsome and attractive son, is prince, and he works his way into the good graces of all the people. You see, Absalom had charm. He could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman wearing white gloves. He had it. Whatever it was, Absalom had it. He was charming. So every morning, Absalom would wake up early, before everyone else would wake up, and he would station himself just beyond the gates of the city on the outskirts. So as people came from all over Israel to bring their request to the king, the first person they see is the handsome Prince Absalom. And then he would schmooze them. He would shoot the breeze with them. He'd say, hey, greetings. On behalf of Jerusalem, I'm Prince Absalom. Why are you headed to the palace? And they would talk to him. He goes, well, where are you from? And they'd go, oh, oh, you're from Clovis? Oh, Clovis, I love the rodeo. Wow. Wow. And then he would say, oh, oh, you're from Selma? Oh, I love those raisins. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> oh, oh, you're, you're from Fresno. Oh, you're, I love how close you are to the mountains and to the beach, and you're only a few hours away from the bay and also L.A. It's perfect. He would schmooze them. And then he would say, you, he, then he would go, hey, tell me about your case that you're bringing before the king. And then they would tell him. And then Absalom would say, well, the king's not going to do anything about it. If I were judge in the land, certainly you'd win this case. You'd get your fair shake. No joke, Absalom would schmooze every person before they came in, uh, into the city. And the Bible says this, Absalom be behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And after four years of this, he lies to his dad and he says, oh, can I go make a sacrifice in Ebron? And Dave's like, why do you want to do that? And he says, well, remember when I killed my half-brother and then I ran away? I said that if, that if I ever was allowed back in the palace, I would make these sacrifices to God in Hebron. Never mind that Hebron was the place where David was anointed. Never mind that Hebron was also the place that used to be the capital city of Israel, David says yes. Notice again that Absalom uses sacrifice as a cover story. This is exactly what the prophet Samuel did, right, with King Saul. The prophet Samuel says, I'm going to offer a sacrifice, and he's going to anoint King David. Now, David's son Absalom says, I'm going to do a sacrifice, but he's going to proclaim himself the anointed king of Israel. Samuel used sacrifice to deceive King Saul, Absalom used sacrifice to deceive King David. And if we just change that word sacrifice to the modern-day equivalent, worship. Samuel used worship to deceive Saul. David, or Absalom uses worship to deceive David. We often still can use worship to deceive. I go to church. I post on, on the gram. Like everybody knows I go to church. I'm, I'm a good person. 
Now I can live however I want the rest of the week because I, I did my due diligence on Sunday. So trumpets are blown throughout the kingdom, and Absalom is proclaimed king in Hebron, and the people begin to follow him. And David hears about this, and he makes an incredibly fast, calculated, informed decision. Because David, he could have mustered all of his troops. He was a fighting man. He was a warrior. He's got loyal soldiers with him, and he could have mounted an attack against Absalom. But he weighed it and said, not all battles can be won right now. And so he begins to flee. This is a battle David would lose. He flees again, and now he's another fugitive. He, he was a fugitive under King Saul, and now he's a fugitive under his son, King Absalom. So David, his loyal general, Joab, many of the fighting men, leave with David from the palace in Jerusalem. Then there's this tiny little story about Ittai the Gittite. It's one of the funnest phrases to say in the Bible. Ittai the Gittite. Uh, see, Ittai the Gittite had just shown up. He was from the Philistines. He had just shown up the day before. And he's like, we're loyal. Me and all my guys, we're loyal to you, King David. And then the next day, Absalom revolts and becomes king. So then David's sneaking out the palace, and Ittai the Gittite and all his men are going right with David. And David's like, hey, 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 what are you guys doing? You guys, everybody else here, they know that they're loyal to me. Okay, so they're going to get killed if they stay. But nobody knows you're loyal to me. You should stay here under King Absalom and you can thrive. Don't go with me. You see, even when it's beneficial for David to get this, this Ittai the Gittite and all of his men with him, he, bene he, he sacrifices his own desires, what would benefit him for the benefit of Ittai. That's what love does. That's what love does. He's like, bro, you don't got to be loyal to me. Stay here. David barely knows Ittai the Gittite. He knows he's, 24 hours he's known him. This is very similar to how David and his men saved the city of Keilah that we looked at last week when they were in the run from King Saul. That it's inconvenient and it doesn't make logical sense and it doesn't benefit David himself, yet they sacrifice for the benefit of others. Still looking out for somebody else. In this story, we see David again as a, as a Christ type, sacrificing what might be best for him to do what is best for someone else, someone that he doesn't even really know. That's what love does. Can you think of somebody in your own life this morning that God may be calling you to sacrifice what is of benefit to you for the benefit of them? You know what Ittai, the Gittite did? He followed David. He remained loyal. He responded to love with love. He becomes one of David's three commanders. And if you haven't noticed yet, this is a brutal, violent world, okay? This is roughly 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Jesus. And the first thing that Absalom does as king he constructs a tent on the top of the palace for all of Israel to see, and then he sleeps with all of David's wives, except for one. Okay, that's too far. <laughs> Slept with all the other wives. You don't believe me? 2 Samuel 16, 22 says this. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is equivalent to a dog marking his territory. 
brutal, violent world. Absalom has become a beast. See, many years before, the young Absalom was enraged when a trusted family member took advantage of his sister. Now he himself has disgraced his father's wives in the same way that Amnon disgraced Tamar. He has become what he raged against. And you know the end of the story, right? Absalom's on his way to destroy his father. And while riding a mule, his hair gets stuck in an oak tree. And while hanging there, Joab, David's general, took three javelins and stuck them in his heart. Absalom not only betrayed David, but he also betrayed Joab. So Joab took revenge on Absalom, who took revenge on Amnon. It's all cyclical. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. Lies beget lies. Only love has the power to break this cycle. Look at 1 Samuel 18. Verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I told you David was a crier. Are you surprised that he acts like this when he finds out that Absalom is dead? The story seems to tell us that no matter what your child does to cause you pain, you never lose your love for them. We already know this intrinsically. We already feel the weight of that love inside of our souls. In telling the story and starting with the ending and then working our way back to that point, we can see some of the events, some of the actions that led Absalom to make the choices that he made. See, in the chapters before this, we see David sleeping with another man's wife, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. He uses his own power as king to quench his lust, and he just catches a glimpse of her bathing through, his, through the top of his palace, through a window, and he immediately calls her in. Absalom knew about it. Everybody knew about it. So what does Amnon do? Like father, like son. Amnon uses his power to quench his own lust when he rapes Tamar. So the first event where we see David's son Absalom, the horrible sexual assault of his sister, David the king does nothing. He's completely passive. There's no restitution. There's no justice. The king had the power to enact something. It's what the king is supposed to do, but David does nothing. And all of this severely wounds Absalom. Dad, you're not doing anything? He took advantage of your daughter, my full sister. Think of it from his perspective. Your father takes advantage of a woman, and then he has her husband killed. Then your sister is taken by another man, and your father does nothing. These are not just the sins of Absalom. These are the sins of David that are affecting Absalom. Listen, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That person in their life that has just been a thorn, that has been a pain, that has caused you strife and anger and hurt you and affected you and lied about you and told stories about you and tried to get you fired, that person has been hurt before and they are now wounding you. Look at verse 
3 of chapter 15. This is when Absalom is stealing the hearts of the people. Then Absalom would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. What did he focus in on? What is he using to manipulate the people? Where does Absalom poke at his father, da- father David? Where is he most critical of his dad? Well, it's his sense of justice. Where was he wounded by his father? By his father's lack of justice. Hurt people hurt people. And it's often the very same place where we're wounded that we begin to wound others. This can be transformative to contemplate in our own lives because the person who wronged you, your present enemy, has also been the victim. And to know that affects how you treat your enemy. One of David's sons is dead because he couldn't control his lust for sex. One of his David's sons is dead because of his lust for revenge and power. But there is another son from King David. A thousand years after David dies, one of his descendants is born. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. You see, there's another son of David, and his name is Jesus, and he doesn't forget the mistreated. He enacts justice. He doesn't seek revenge. He offers forgiveness. He does not rebel. He liberates. Perhaps you have been mistreated or neglected in some way by your own parents people who are supposed to always be there for you, the people who are never supposed to let you down. Jesus doesn't. All of our parents have failed in some way. Jesus doesn't. There is never a time when he is not there for you or his arms are not open to you. Perhaps you are a parent and you realize your own shortcomings have been passed down to your own children. You're human. You can't change the past. But you can live differently here and now and in the future. I want to invite Jenica in the band to come up. And I'll close with this. One of the most powerful books I've ever read. It's five chapters long. And I just, I just want to read it to you in its entirety now. Here's chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to get out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. (laughs) What chapter are you in? What chapter are you in? This is the life of David. 
Will we, will we repeat the mistakes of the past or will we write a better and different story? You can't use the past as the determining factor of your own future. God doesn't consult the past. He says today. He says tomorrow. Paul says that I forgetting is what, what is behind. I press on to run the race. I fix my eyes on Jesus, this new son of David. We all have fallen short as parents, as kids, as followers of Christ, as brothers and sisters. We've all fallen short. We've all rebelled. Jesus forgives. Jesus liberates. He's so much better than our own choices, our own destructive choices. God, I pray that you would help us to trust in you, the liberated king. God, I pray that you would help us to fall in love with you in a greater way. God, that we would so be filled up with your love that we would, that it would emanate from us in our homes, in our places of work, in our city, in our world. God, we are broken for our past decisions, destructive choices. But God, you call us to move past the past. You call us to move past the past in Jesus' name. Help us to do so, God. God, we, uh, we ask that you would fill us up so that we can pour you out to a world that so desperately needs you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the praises of our great God together?